Well, on Mother's Day from this pulpit, I commented how thankful I am for my mom, particularly for her prayers for me before I was even born. And today here on Father's Day, I want to say, Dad, I wouldn't be here without you. My dad isn't here, but he listens to the recording sometimes, so I thought he'd be encouraged to know that I'm alive because of him. But I'm not just thankful for my life that my dad gave me. I am thankful for his Christ-like leadership and love from an early age. One of the ways that my dad loved me best was by taking me to church. Each Sunday, whether we were living in Minneapolis, we were going to Bethlehem Baptist Church there, or in Louisville at Clifton and Trinity Church. Kids, if you're sitting here today, don't tune me out just yet. One of the ways that your parents love you is by taking you to church. You are here in church because your parents love you, and they want you to hear the good news of the gospel and to worship with God's people. Now, I know for many of us, being in church on Sundays is just what we do. It's a habit. It's a duty. I know my parents taught me, if it's Sunday morning, you are in church. Even if I were not a pastor, if I were to skip out on church to go, say, on a hike in the gorge or to watch football on TV, I would feel really guilty. It was ingrained into me from an early age that on Sunday mornings, you're in church. And duty, commitment, and habit to church, they're good things. Don't get me wrong. But this morning, we want to consider the delight of gathering with God's people to worship. The delight of gathering with God's people to worship. We want to look toward heaven together and bring some of that eternal joy into today. For duty and habit will not be enough to sustain us on this journey. We need the delight of heaven's unity and peace to refresh us as we make our way to the heavenly Jerusalem. So this morning we are in Psalm 122. The Pew Bibles are back. Praise the Lord. Feel free to take advantage of those. If you want to follow along in the black Pew Bibles in front of you or in the chairs underneath you, you will find Psalm 122 on page 543, 543. We are in sermon number three of our journey through the Psalms of Ascents. God's people would sing these songs three times a year as they made their journey up to Jerusalem to worship. So listen now as I read to us from Psalm 122. Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet were standing within your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Built as a city should be, solidly united, where the tribes, the, Lord tri- the Lord's tribes go up to give thanks to the name of the Lord. This is an ordinance for Israel. There thrones for judgment are placed, thrones of the house of David. Pray for the well-being of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls, security within your fortresses. Because of my brothers and friends, I will say... May peace be in you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will pursue your prosperity. Well, this psalm calls us 
So let's go worship our priest and king. Let's go worship our priest and king. That's our main takeaway this morning. And this psalm has three stanzas which show us how to do that. One, standing in heaven's joy. Two, united in heaven's praise. Three, praying for heaven's peace. Standing in heaven's joy, united in heaven's praise, and praying for heaven's peace. Don't worry if you take notes. I'll give them to you as we go along. My prayer is that this psalm will renew our joy, our unity, and our peace as a congregation as we journey towards the heavenly Jerusalem. So let's go worship our priest and king together by first standing in heaven's joy. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. A song of ascents of David. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet were standing within your gates, Jerusalem. Well, our pilgrim has arrived at his destination. He left behind the lies and the deceit of Meshach and Kedar, as we thought about in Psalm 120. The Lord helped him and protected him. He didn't let his foot slip, as we thought about last week in Psalm 121. And now finally, our pilgrim is standing with his companions within the gates of Jerusalem. Was it worth the trip? Well, our pilgrim had high expectations when his friends came to him and said, let's go. Let's go to the house of the Lord. Our pilgrim didn't say, well, I've had a really hard week at work. Could we go maybe next week? Or my kids have soccer, so I'm sorry I can't make it. Or it sounds like a dangerous journey. No, our pilgrim, at the encouragement to go, says, I rejoiced. He rejoiced with those who invited him. For they weren't just climbing a mountain for the sense of you get from accomplishment from climbing a mountain for fitness or the camaraderie of going together. No, at the top of the mountain was Jerusalem, the city of David. And there in Jerusalem was the house of the Lord. Now, if we're going to catch the joy of this psalm, we need a biblical understanding of the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is crucial to the psalm, and it's key to the storyline of the entire Bible. And here in Psalm 122, the song begins and ends with the house of the Lord. Did you notice that in verses 1 and 9? It's what encases the psalmist's joy. As Israel first journeyed to the promised land with Moses and Joshua, the house of the Lord traveled with them in the form of a tabernacle or a tent of meeting. It was kind of like a mobile home for God. But if Tesla or BMW made mobile homes, this tent of meeting was posh. It's very exclusive. Only the priests were allowed to enter inside. Eventually, this tent of meeting found its way to Jerusalem. King David established it in Zion, the holy mountain of the Lord. And this is where God's presence dwelt on earth. Solomon upgrades the tent to a temple. And the people of the Lord then, as we've said, would travel three times a year to behold this glorious house of the Lord. They came at three festivals. The festival of unleavened bread, which included the Passover, festival of harvest, and the festival of ingathering. What did they do at these festivals? Well, they ate lots of good food. They fellowshiped. 
They gave thanks. They offered their sacrifices. But most importantly, these festivals were not just about having a good time. Most importantly, they remembered. They remembered who they were, who God was, and what God had done for them. Who were they? They were God's special chosen people. God chose them not because they were more holy and righteous than the other nations or more numerous than the other nations. He chose them because he loved them. He set his love on them like a father choosing to adopt his firstborn son. That's who they were. Who was this God? Well, he was, he's the Lord. He's who we've been considering, the maker of heaven and earth. He made the other gods of the nations, nations like Kadar and Meshach, look like action figures on the shelf compared to his power. He was their helper. He spoke a word of truth uh, that pierces through this world of lies. Finally, what had this God done for them? Well, he had helped them. He had rescued them. He led them out of slavery and established them in the promised land of Israel. So this is why the psalmist rejoices when his friends come to him and say, let's go. Let's go to the house of the Lord, for he longed to worship this Lord in his presence, be in his presence, and be with his brothers and sisters to be together to remember these foundational truths about who they were, who God was, and what God had done for them. When my parents woke me up on Sunday mornings and would say, let's go to church, I did not rejoice. Uh, Believe it or not, I often got into trouble at church. I remember one Sunday, I must have been nine or ten, and I got caught kicking in some rotting drywall outside of my Sunday school class. My Sunday, I still remember the look on my Sunday school teacher's face. She was horrified. She said, she looked at me and she said, you, like trembling, you are destroying the house of the Lord. As I thought about what my Sunday school teacher had said, I was confused, a little embarrassed as well. I thought, our old church building with the rotting drywall is the house of the Lord? And I can destroy it? Now, there's always been a defined place for worship, whether it be the Garden of Eden, the Tent of Meeting, the Tabernacle, the Temple. So today is the church the house of the Lord? Well, yes and no. The place on earth that God chooses to dwell is holy, whether it be the burning bush, the Ark of the Covenant, the Temple, or the church. But God even tells us that the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what will be my resting place? Did my hand, did not my hand make all these things? We can't build a house for the Lord, but he built one for us. Everything changed when God's presence came down in the person of Jesus Christ. The house of God came to us in the living, breathing, walking, and speaking Son of God. And we beheld his glory. He was the true temple. This is how Martin Luther said it. Our Jerusalem is the church. 
and our temple is Christ. Wheresoever Christ is preached and the sacraments are duly administered, there we are sure God dwells. And there is our temple, our tabernacle, our cherubim, and our mercy seat. For there God is present with us by his word. So the house of the Lord isn't a building with rotting drywall that mischievous church kids can destroy. When the Father sent his Son, the house of the Lord came to us. And as we worship Christ, our King, we, his people, called by his name, we are his body, we are the building, the family, yes, even the city of God. I agree with Martin Luther that our Jerusalem today is the church because of Christ. Christ is our temple. I also want you to notice here in Psalm 122 that our pilgrim doesn't just rejoice by himself, but he rejoices with those who invited him to the house of the Lord. One of the most depressing things for me about the pandemic was actually Sunday mornings. Often, because I'm a pastor and I'm on staff, I would be in this room as you were watching on the live stream. And don't get me wrong, I was encouraged by the sermons, by the songs, by the prayers, but I would sit there without you all. It was really hard to rejoice without my church family. Now, we are all so thankful for the live stream, but this service is not the church. Just as we know that this building isn't the church, we know we're thankful for both of those things. The church is us. We are the church, worshiping our king and our great high priest together. Because we are in Christ, when we worship our king, we are Jerusalem. And isn't it wonderful to be in Jerusalem again? Let's rejoice to be back together again. Let's rejoice together. I think we realized after this last year how sometimes we take for granted the privilege and the joy that it is to gather as God's people who are called by his name and worship him in spirit and in truth. Just as Jesus tells the Samaritan woman in John 4, let this last year be a reminder to us to not take that for granted again. And let's rejoice to go up to the house of the Lord and to worship him together. And don't be embarrassed to be standing in Jerusalem, our church. Tell your church family who haven't come back yet, let's go to the house of the Lord together. Tell your neighbors, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, would you come with us to worship? Invite them to come and share in your joy, the joy that you know in being with God's people, hearing his word and praising his name. And if you're struggling to feel that joy, pray that the Lord would restore your joy. So let's come and celebrate and rejoice each Sunday that we gather. Because when we gather each Sunday, we get a taste, just as Mark prayed earlier, of what it will be like in the heavenly Jerusalem, the place and the people that will joyfully worship our king and priest forever. 
So this first stanza in Psalm 122 begins with a joyful expectation of worshiping in the Lord's house. The second stanza leads us into the city of Jerusalem. So let's go worship our priest and king, point two, united in heaven's praise, verses three through five. Look at those verses again. Jerusalem, built as a city should be, solidly united where the tribes, the Lord's tribes, go up to give thanks to the name of the Lord. This is an ordinance for Israel. There, thrones for judgment are placed, thrones of the house of David. Well, we left off in verse 2 with our pilgrim finally standing within the gates of Jerusalem. Now in verse 3, he looks around and praises this glorious city. Ah, Jerusalem. Now this is a city. He praises this city for its unity as one people in one place under God's good rule. One people in one place under God's good rule. In these three verses of the second stanza, I see three implications for our unity as a church today. In other words, I have three subpoints here in point two. Subpoint one, united together, verse three. Jerusalem is bound firmly together. It's solid. There are many stones, but one city. It's built solid and secure as a city should be. I think just in general, I'm no general contractor, but I do know that you need to build like materials with like materials. It's not going to work if you have like a bag of sand, some brick, some stone, some Play-Doh. It's not going to work well. In general, you place wood on wood, brick on brick, stone on stone. So if the church is the New Jerusalem, stay with me, we want a city solidly united in Christ. We want living stones that are made of the same material. That is Christians. A church is made of Christians. If we are not a church made of Christians, we will not be solidly united. We will crumble when the winds come. So here at Hinson and Baptist churches in general protect their unity by building a membership of baptized Christians, stones of the same stuff. You know, it's no accident that when we renew our church covenant together each month, this is how we begin. Listen to the very beginning. As those, who are we? Who have been brought to repent and believe in Jesus Christ by the grace of God, being united to him by his spirit, we now solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another. Friends, maybe you aren't accustomed to coming to church on Sundays and you're wondering, well, what is a Baptist church? What makes Baptist churches different than, say, a Presbyterian or a Methodist church? This is it, actually. Uh, what makes Baptists unique is we believe that a church is finally a family or a building of regenerate, that is, born-again church members. You know, just because my parents taught me from an early age, on Sundays you go to church, that's what you do, does it mean that I automatically, over time, just morphed into a living stone? I didn't become a Christian just because uh, I was in attendance. I had to make a choice to follow Jesus as king. I had to be baptized upon my profession of faith. And as you heard at the beginning of the service, today is a special day. Because we get to see a picture of a sister who has professed faith in Christ and wants to be baptized and join our city, so to speak. She's committing to help build
build the solid unity of this church, and we are receiving her with great joy and want to build her up in unity and in love. Our common faith unites us and makes us a city that's solidly united. So point two, we're also one in purpose. We're not only of the same stuff, but verse four, all the bricks of the same material need to have the same purpose. If we have one group of bricks lying over here, trying to do one thing, got one brick over there doing its thing, maybe, you know, building unity around a particular just doctrine, or we're all about community over here, or this worship style, we're going to be in trouble. Instead, we need to come together for one purpose to encourage one another to praise our Lord by giving thanks to him. Did you see that in verse 4? All the tribes coming together as one to do what? To give thanks, to worship. I love how Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, said it this way about this verse. He said, let us, as much as possible, sink the tribal individuality into the national unity so that the church may be many waves but one sea, many branches, but one tree, many members, but one body. As we see in verse 4, the ordinance or command for Israel and for all the tribes was to come together to give thanks. But this command to give thanks doesn't dampen the, the duty, dampen the delight, rather, of our pilgrim. For when many diverse people come together as one to praise the living God, there is not just rejoicing on earth, but in heaven. Third, sub point three, it's unity protected. Look at verse five. In Jerusalem, there were thrones for judgment where Israel's kings sat. The justice and wisdom of these kings throughout the ages protected the unity of the nation. Without justice, without the rule of the king, there would be anarchy. Now, unfortunately, that's through most of Israel's history. That's what they had. People did what was right in their own eyes. Most of the kings were not good, and they used their authority. They used these thrones to prey on the people. So God sent his one true king, the one whom he had promised would sit on David's throne forever. This was the ultimate house that God had promised David. And when our king came, what did he pray for us? As our great high priest, he prayed for our unity. He prayed that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. And brothers and sisters, the good news is that we know because of the gospel is that the Father heard and answered that prayer. For now we have a supernatural unity that was secured at the cross. So it is now our delight to thank God for how Christ established our unity. He reinforced the building of the church with the mortar of the blood of the Son. And his justice displayed at the cross and the empty tomb ensures that God's purposes for his people will never fail. And his purpose is a people to praise his name in perpetuity. Hence, in our unity is precious. Came at the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ died so that God could be our father and that we together could be brothers and sisters. And our praise, our thanks to our great God is the common mission 
that makes all our many differences and opinions fade into the background. So I have to ask, will our unity crumble if an earthquake of division comes? What if we have another contentious election in three years? What if we have more government mandates that affect our gathering in the future? What if someone in your small group says something that you strongly disagree with about politics or culture or even theology? Will that cause you and maybe your tribe to no longer come up to worship in this place with God's people? You know, the the stonework, not to alarm you, but the stonework around us in this building will eventually crumble. It's uh, unreinforced masonry. It's actually sandstone. But our unity as a people of God is protected by God himself. Barbed concrete has nothing on us if we rest in the purpose and the foundation of our unity. Now, the earthly Jerusalem that our pilgrim uh, praised was eventually destroyed, as we know. But our pilgrim knew that Jerusalem was more than a city. It was a people, a people united in praise to the Prince of Peace. Now, now we're called to live in this house of unity uh, with love, humility, and ultimately to worship the one who prepared this eternal house of praise for us. We pray that God would preserve the unity of this place until the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, adorned like a bride for her groom. Our unity now anticipates the unity that we will know forever as God's people around his throne, praising him. We not only see the unity of Jerusalem in our psalm, but the peace that is within. And that's what we're going to consider third and finally. Let's go worship our priest and king, point three, praying for heaven's peace. Look at verses six through nine. Pray for the well-being of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls, security within your fortresses. Because of my brothers and friends, I will say, may peace be in you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will pursue your prosperity. This might, must be the same pilgrim that we considered back in Psalm 120. Remember how Psalm 120 ends? I am for peace, but they are for war. Now finally, our man of peace is within the city of peace. And he's loving it. You know, well-being in verse 6 could also be translated as peace. So if well-being is peace in verse 6, we have peace three times in this last stanza. The song began rejoicing at the invitation to travel here to the city of peace. He praised the unity of the city of peace protected by justice in the second stanza. And now here he prays for the city. He prays for its well-being. He prays for her peace and he pursues the city's prosperity. You know, certainly one reason this pilgrim rejoices to arrive at Jerusalem is because its thick walls protected it from threats to its peace from the outside. The enemies and the idolatries out there were protected because here he was within the mighty walls of Jerusalem. And we, we don't maybe really understand that today, but security, safety and security were a rare gift 
in the ancient Near East in this way. But that kind of security from without is kind of assumed in this psalm. Instead, our pilgrim focuses on the need for peace within. Did you notice that? Peace within your walls. Peace within your fortresses. And then finally, may peace be in you. We're going to think in a minute of whether there is peace within these walls, within us as a church. But first, we need to consider, is peace within us? I mean, is peace within you? Where have you been looking for peace and prosperity lately? I confess that all too often, I look for peace and escape, whether it be sports, TV, movies, fun trips, just vegging out in front of my phone, or relaxing and indulging with good food and drink. Scripture teaches us that these things are good gifts from God that we're meant to enjoy. But all too often, I turn to those things for escape, for peace, for prosperity within. So where will we find this peace and prosperity that we are all looking for? Is it in a new job or a spouse, a family, financial security? The peace that we are looking for came from above. He was a pilgrim, an ordinary-looking man. And he took up this journey to Jerusalem with his disciples, probably singing these songs, praying these psalms of ascent. But as he approached the city of Jerusalem, listen to what Luke 19 says. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now... It is hidden from your eyes. Even the disciples who had spent the last three years with Jesus, seeing his peace played out in miracles and love, they missed it. They couldn't see it. The house of the Lord, their God, was standing right in front of them. And yet they were more impressed when they went into Jerusalem with the buildings It said to Jesus, look at these impressive buildings. And there was the temple right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only did the disciples not recognize that the true temple had come into the city of Jerusalem, this man who was for peace incensed the religious rulers and leaders. So they took the way of peace into their own hands. They were afraid that this man would lead to the Romans coming in and taking away their nation and, this, and their place. So they stirred up the mob. They decided it would be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. We all think we're for peace, just like the re- religious leaders did. They thought they were doing a good thing for the nation. But isn't our pursuit of peace all too often rooted in self-protection? and fear, and envy, and a love for the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. But praise God that there was a man 
who is willing to face the wrath of God, the wrath that we deserved to face because we were for war. For our cowardice, our hatred, our violence, our envy, our pride. But when the wrath of the Father was poured out on this pilgrim at the cross, he secured our peace and our justification. Friends, this is the good news of peace that we rejoice in every time we gather. This is what gives us unity together. This is the news that we need to be reminded of every day, every week, that God is creator, holy, good, powerful. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He made us to live in his presence, to know the peace that comes from him. But in our pride, we rebelled. The Bible calls us this sin. Because God is holy and just, our sin deserves judgment, even eternal judgment. But God sent his son, the man of peace. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And he laid down his life on the cross to secure our eternal joy and peace. He was the punishment that brings us peace. And God raised this man of peace up from the dead on the third day. All so that we might be raised with him and know the joy of heaven's peace. This good news of the gospel can be your good news today. If only you will turn from your sin trust in Christ. Hinson Church, if God pursued peace with us at such a cost, shouldn't we pursue peace with one another? Is there someone in this church that you need to pursue peace with, even this week? Or even in your family? Because Christ has made peace with us, we must as people of peace, pursue peace as far as we are able with all people. Friends, by faith, we have arrived in Jerusalem. All those who take hold of the peace that we have in Christ are being built up into this holy city. If you don't know this peace with God, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you can repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. Sometimes our feelings betray us. We don't feel the joy of heaven's peace and unity. Our circumstances tell us that this is not true. But we know that this is true. The baptism that we're about to celebrate, the songs that we sing, hearing God's word, praying to him together, they anticipate the day that is certain when God's dwelling is with us, when he will live with us, when we will be his people and he will be our God, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, death, grief, crying, and pain will be no more and the former things will pass away. We will be his people and we will see his face. So let's rejoice to come and worship our king and priest even now in faith. And let's build the unity of this church in love. Let's rest in the peace that was accomplished for us on the cross and pursue that peace with one another. Also that we might know the joy of being in the presence of our king and priest forever. Let's go and worship him together. Will you come?
Let's pray. Father, we praise you as the Father of joy. Lord, you have known joy from eternity past with the Son and the Spirit. And out of your joy, Lord, you created all things. And you created us to share in your joy. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for ways that we pursue joy and peace in the created things rather than looking to you and beholding you with faith. Father, help us to remember the cross each day. Lord, how our peace was secured there and how it anticipates our eternal joy of being with you. So, Lord, we pray that we would stir one another up to love and good deeds, that we would pursue peace with one another until that great day when we see you face to face. Lord, we long for the joy and the peace that we will know on that eternal day. Persevere us till that day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.